Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. Um, Catholic husband who um, was invited by one of his friends to go on a weekend, a Protestant friend to go on a weekend about male headship. And after the weekend, he came back and he told his wife, you know, how things were going to change in the home. You know, it's going to be like this and like this and like this. Anyway, he didn't see his wife for a whole week. And on the eighth day, he could just see her out of that swollen eye there. <laughs> That's a Father Dennis joke. Or there's the other story of the, um, the couple who go for marriage preparation. And the priest says, you know, well, you know, the, the heart of the whole thing is that the two will become one. And the man says, yeah, but which one? Okay, so anyway, that's the kind of problem we have before us um, that I'd just like to explore. And I'm not directly going to give my opinion on it, but I'm going to lay out some um, various approaches to it, um, partly because of, as my understanding, how these little sessions are meant to work. They're yeah? not meant to meet, necessarily be the person up, the, up front just telling people how it is, but trying to open up um, a question. And it seems right, let's just briefly, I'll, I'll read this, the, the, the key text then from Ephesians. So it's Ephesians chapter 5, um, which runs like this. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their own body just as Christ does for the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his husband, leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Well, these days, you never know. Uh, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, one, one approach to understanding this seems to be at least in outline laid before us in the theology of the body. Well, when I say an outline, it's because John Paul II only very lightly touches upon it, and then some of his interpreters um, take that 
um, and sort of run with it. I'm not saying they run in the wrong direction, but it's not really worked out in much detail in the Theology of the Body. But I just included the one text there from the Theology of the Body where this is brought uh, into focus. John Paul II says, although the spouses should be subject to one another in fear of Christ, this point has already been highlighted in the first verse of Ephesians 5, nevertheless, in what follows the husband is above all the one who loves and the wife, by contrast, is the one who is loved. One might even venture the idea that the wife's submission to the husband, understood in the context of the whole of Ephesians, means above all the experiencing of love. Now, one way to understand what John Paul II is saying there would be something like this. If you look at verse 21 of Ephesians 5, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there's the submit to one another motif. And one might interpret that to mean there is a kind of mutual submission which is required. And then in order to work out, okay, how does that work? Is it, is it just a kind of completely symmetrical submission or uh, somehow a non-symmetrical submission? It seems that John Paul II might be saying something like this. Um, the male mode or the, or the husband mode of submission is to obey his mission to love his wife. Whereas the feminine mode of submission is to obey by allowing herself to be loved. Yeah? That, that would be one way of understanding this text from John Paul II. It seems to be the way, I went and checked in, in for example, in Christopher West's Theology of the Body Explained, and it seems to be, he, again, he didn't give much detail, but it seemed to be the way he expresses it. So this, this interpretation has two elements. First, chapter 20, verse 21 says, submit to one another, so it seems to be some kind of mutual submission. And then to understand how we would have a, a male mode of submission and a female mode of submission, the male mode is to obey his mission to love his wife, to submit to his duty to love his wife, you might say. And the feminine mode uh, would be to obey by allowing herself to be loved. Now, there's something good about that. So let me say what's good about that before I offer the critique of some others in regards to that. What's good about that is um, it emphasizes the fundamental truth that a husband's mission is to serve his family. Christ himself says, I am among you as one who serves. And C.S. Lewis says in The Four Loves, if the husband has a crown, don't be jealous of him because it's a crown of thorns. And in addition to emphasizing the fundamental truth that a husband is there to serve the family, it emphasizes the equal dignity of the husband and the wife. So it's good on both of those scores. Okay, however, uh, it's not too difficult to find people who uh, would um, object to that way of interpreting the text. And various things might be pointed out. Verse 21, where it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, it's not at all clear that this means husband and wife, because it seems to be a banner heading for three 
types of hierarchy. First of all, wife submitted to husband, that runs up until verse 33. Then child to parent is what Paul then talks about, and slave to master. So some interpreters will say, well, given that actually you've got to read this whole chunk in context, and what you're going to get is some advice about the relationship of husband and wife, then advice about parents and child, then advice about master and slave, the banner phrase, submit to one, to one another out of reverence for Christ, does not mean wife and husband mutually submit. It means wife to husband, child to parent, slave to master. Okay? So there'll be a critique of, of interpreting verse 21 as meaning mutual submission. The other problem is that the, the verb in verse 22, wives submit, is the word upatasu. And it's quite a strong, um, has quite a strong sense in the Greek. If you look in other places, for example, Titus 3.1, it's about subjection of citizens to the rulers. And it, doesn't, it does seem to bring with it a certain hierarchy and a need for one of the parties to rule and set rules and the other to ultimately obey rules. So it's a little bit um, sharper, you might say, that verb than perhaps uh, my initial interpretation um, uh, might have suggested. And then thirdly, we'd point out that in this whole text, there isn't anywhere where the same verb, upatasu, to submit, is applied to the husband vis-a-vis -vis the wife. He's told to love her, agapate, but not called to submit to her. So you'll find people then who would object quite strongly to the interpretation that some say is John Paul II's interpretation of the text. Okay, if that's the case, in what direction do they go well, I included another text here from Caste Canubi, which is Pius XI's encyclical on Christian marriage. And there we have Pius grappling with this same text. He says, this submission, sorry, I skipped through that one. This, this submission, however, does not deny or take away the liberty which fully belongs to the woman, both in view of her dignity as a human person and in view of her most noble office as wife and mother and companion. Nor does it bid her obey her husband's every request, if not in harmony with right reason or with the dignity due to a wife. Nor in fine does it imply that the wife should be put on the level of those persons who in law are called minors to whom it is not customary to allow free exercise of their rights on account of their lack of mature judgment or of their ignorance of human affairs. But it forbids the exaggerated liberty that cares not for the good of the family. It forbids that in this body, which is the family, the heart be separated from the head to the great detriment of the whole body and the proximate danger of ruin. For if the man is the head, the woman is the heart. And as he occupies the chief place in ruling, so she may and ought to claim for herself the chief place in love. 
It seems to me that uh, if we look at that, the, the, the fundamental point that Pius is trying to make is that if there is some kind of hierarchical functional structuring in the family and in marriage, it's fundamentally ordered towards the common good of the family. And I guess we have to admit this, that in any multiplicity, in, any, in anything where there's more than one person, and those persons together are seeking some common goal, there does need to be some kind of functional hierarchy or structuring if there's not to be chaos. I mean, otherwise we would have to say, look, why don't we just cut our losses and have Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton as presidents together? I mean, can you think of a good reason against that proposal? It reminds me of George Bernard Shaw, came out of theatre once, um, and uh, uh, the, the actress, who was the kind of prima donna, came up to him and said to George, George, me and you should have babies, you know, with my looks and your brain will be a world beater. To which he replied, yes, but madam, just imagine if they have my looks and your brain. Um, okay, but the, but the, the point is that um, it's just the case, if there's multiplicity and we're trying to aim in this group towards a common good, there does normally need, or we would normally expect, at least in every other situation it seems, we expect there to be some functional hierarchy. This is not a hierarchy of dignity, but a hierarchy in, in function. Okay, so how do those who are pushing it this way go on from there? Well, they've got a clear statement that they think that there needs to be some kind of hierarchy in which one is ultimately placed above the other. But then the question becomes, why would it need to be the husband? Why couldn't it be the wife? Why couldn't we decide one way or the other, yeah? Okay, I'll give you at least two somewhat different reasons which I've seen uh, offered in regards to this. C.S. Lewis, grapples with this question in mere Christianity. And there he says that it seems to him right that the man be the head or the ultimate authority because the family is effectively a cell or unit of society. And the man tends to be more reasonable in dealings of that unit with other units in the society. Because, he says, the woman tends to have a more ferocious patriotism for the good of the family. And wives, he says, will normally criticize their husbands for not standing up sufficiently for the rights of the family, the individual family, vis-a-vis -vis the demands from outside. But he says he thinks that's not, that can be problematic. So he says, for example, if your neighbor, your boy, bites the neighbor's dog, or your dog bites the neighbor's boy, doesn't matter, um, who, do, who would you prefer to go and talk to? The mum or the dad? 
He reckons you'd much prefer to talk to the dad because you think he's going to be more reasonable than the mum in dealing with it. Uh, and therefore, he thinks this is, an, this is a kind of at least an example of the, the fierce patriotism which the mother has to have, rightly has, for the family, but it needs to be balanced with a more, you might say, cons uh, sort of objective um, assessment of the rights of those outside of the family. And therefore, it's the husband kind of uh, operates in that way as the representative of the family vis-a-vis -vis the outside world. Another approach which I've seen, which I think is, is worth at least briefly considering, is this, that... Um, actually, I got this from uh, Father Ryland. Any of the Ryland girls here? Where are you ladies? From your grandfather, not here, I don't know. Um, who used to be teach here, he was a priest in Stumville, I think some of you probably know him. Yeah. Uh, he, he, his position was this, that <clears throat> it, the mother is naturally much more indispensable in the family. Her loss to the family is more catastrophic to the family than the loss of the father. And Therefore, in a way, the man, if he's not placed as the head of the family, has a very minor role in the family. And therefore, so that there would be a kind of equality in the family, the man needs to be head. Because if he's not the head, it's unequal because of the fundamentally greater contribution that the mother makes to the family. Now, I think that's quite interesting because it seems to be touch upon something which we experience in our own world now is that uh, f fathers tend to drift away from the family more than the mothers. And I think precisely because it's not clear to them at all that they have a particularly important role in the family. And so actually, the headship of the husband is something which holds the husband in the family. Um, I think this is a bit of exaggeration, but I got the impression once when I was reading, um, uh, what's his name? I've got his name completely now. Richard Dawson, sorry, Richard, Richard Dawson's, uh, an essay he wrote on the patriarchal structure of society. Um, and he, was, he didn't quite say this, so I'm putting some words in his mouth, but that's, that's okay, he's dead, can't get back at me. So. Um, that, uh, that patriarchalism, is that a word? Okay, patriarchalism, he, he thinks that that was invented by women in order to hold men to their duties. Because in, in when, when the father is not really given a particular uh, honor in the culture, then he doesn't really have a particular place. And then he easily gives up his duties, abandons the family, and moves on to, to some other woman. 
Yeah. So it seems, I think, uh, Father Ryan is trying to make this point that, that actually, strangely enough, or paradoxically enough, there's a natural inequality in, in, to the detriment of the man in the family. And therefore, having the functional hierarchy brings back that balance between husband and wife, yeah? Okay, I'm, I'm almost done here, and then I'd be more interested to hear what you've got to say than what I've got to say. Um, uh, let me just say something of my, my own experience, then, my own experience. If these authors are right, I would say, okay, if I'm going to go with these authors, these second group of authors, and in a way, going with them doesn't require me to put aside the first interpretation, but it does require me to accept the first interpretation and add to it that the way that Scripture puts it, there really is some functional hierarchy, then I think I would accept it on these terms that it is true that very infrequently, but it can happen and probably does happen, that in a marriage there comes decisions that have to be made but there isn't, for some reason, complete agreement on them. Now, sometimes there's decisions, you just don't have to make them. You can just kind of let it lie and see what happens. But there's sometimes things which come before you, you've got to make a decision. For example, how do you school your kids? I mean, not to make a decision on that is just not to school them, yeah? But, I mean, in a certain sense, then that, that makes a decision but it might be contrary to what one of the persons wants, yeah? But when it's issues that really are central to the mission of the family, and after a long time, a decision cannot be made by absolute agreement, but it has to be made, somebody's got to make the decision for the good of the family. And then it seems to me, then Scripture says, it is the husband who has to make that decision to be quite honest with you, my marriage, I, I, I'm not even sure that I could say that there has ever been that situation, but I'm open to the fact that there could be that situation, yeah? and then something has to be done about it. I think then otherwise, the husband has the duty to fall in with the desires of the wife to the degree that they are reasonable. Why? Because it does seem to me that for Christian perfection, everybody has to exercise some form of obedience. Just as every Christian has to exercise some form of chastity and some form of poverty. Though they be counsels that only religious persons vow themselves to, they still remain the kind of royal road towards Christian perfection. So to some degree, we have to live them in spirit even if we don't live them vowed and materially. And therefore, if the wife is put in the position that she has a formal obedience to her husband in these particular situations, the husband has to find a way to exercise obedience to his wife in the informal ways. And that seems to be normally done by 
falling in with her preferences in things. How you spend your Sundays, where you go on holiday, etc., 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 because they both, at some level, got to um, got to exercise disobedience. Yeah. Okay. I think that's enough for me. Well, normally an hour from me is more than enough. Um, so I would be very interested in um, your thoughts, or even another way that you see it. See this question of understanding headship and domestic church might operate. So who's going to kick us off? Yeah, you know, we might have to do roving mic thing. Are you a good catch? Okay. Then maybe we'll pass it. I just had a pretty practical question. I know some of my friends and I here, um, we went to school here long ago and far away. Um, I was just wondering, I think there are some cases that come up where there's a big decision to make and um, from a personal standpoint, where do you move or um, what jobs do you take? And um, just being married, sometimes it is hard to decide on a very practical level whose whose opinion or judgment is best in that area, especially if maybe your husband doesn't pray as much or something, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm just curious about that, what you might say about that. Yeah, so if I've understood the question, it is, so how do we deal with the fact that there might seem to be an objective superiority of the wife in decision-making? No? Yeah, that, 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 that's kind of what I was, what I was saying that, I was trying to give two sides. I was trying to give how some people have interpreted theology of the body, and without denying that, pointing out that maybe there's a, an incompleteness in that presentation. So some persons want to point out that it seems that you've got to include at some level in, in an interpretation of Paul's saying some kind of, you know, the buck stops here element to it, yeah, to put it bluntly, yeah, and I suppose I would be sympathetic to that because it does seem to be a, a, a stricter interpretation of what Paul is saying, um, and then I was saying uh, something like, if, if I was, I'm sympathetic to that, but how do I see it operating, I see it operating within the context of the common good, this is, seems to be Pius's point, why, do we, why would we have in the society of marriage and the and society of a family any functional structure? It's because they are pursuing a good together, and whenever you're pursuing a good together, you need some authority to guide the pursuit of the good. Yeah? And therefore, it seems to be that's the position of the husband as head. Does that come up often? I don't think so it comes up often, in, in some marriages at least, it seems to me there's, there's such a degree, never complete, but such a degree of harmony that there's generally the same approach. But 
if there are situations where you've got to make a decision, otherwise there's going to be a real perturbation in the family, somebody's got to make the decision. And it seems to be good reasons in order to say that's the man who does it. If there's real incompetency on the side of the man, I mean, it's not very likely, is it? But, but, but say there was. Um, not incontinence, but incompetence. Okay, yeah. um, then there can be situations in which it seems that the woman can take over. If you look at the last uh, paragraph here, that's up here, it says, again, this subjection of the wife to husband in its degree and manner may vary according to different conditions of persons, place, and times. In fact, if the husband neglects his duty, it falls to the wife to take his place in directing the family. Yeah? So, so that, that, that's, that's an important point here. But I think that is, that is in ex, that's an extreme situation. It's not really, I, think, I don't think Pius is thinking, you know, well, it's because the wife is more pious and the husband's a bit more un, impious. I mean, if that was the case, then every family almost, the wife would be head of the family. Yeah? So... But, but when there really is a neglect, then the, the wife, somebody has to rule, and then the wife takes the place. Yeah. Okay, who's next? At the back. Got a gentleman at the back there. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> It's a stand-up, double act. We know each other quite well. <laughs> now go on. <laughs> so when you're talking about the role of the father, like if he's not at the head, he's kind of useless outside of there, I'm kind of curious as to how it falls in to place in that idea where like if the man is out of the family, you know, like young men, they get into trouble, you know, they don't really understand like when they become men or like young women they don't see their value or their dignity unless their father kind of teaches it to them or the young man like um, some things I heard in psychology is like that the self voice that we get like when we're growing up that comes from our fathers so I'm thinking like the mother doesn't give that to us and uh, one example my mother likes to use she'll say like um like if you look at the elephants it's kind of funny for say if you look at the elephants uh, when the father is not in the pack or the herd that the young, the young, you know, the young male elephants will go around and just kill random rhinoceros or hippos or anything. They'll just kill anything mm -hmm. um, because there's no structure there. So I'm thinking, is that, is that the role of the father you're talking about? Like, his leadership role, does that encompass infusing the identity into his sons and his daughters? Because um, that seems like a really crucial role. Like, you can't, you can't get rid of that. And... Um, everyone I know, like other families that are broken, I know it's when the father's gone, even if the mother's trying as hard as she can, like the daughters are still going off, getting in trouble, the sons are still going off, but mm -hmm. I can't think of too many examples where the mother's not there and the father is like an active part and mm -hmm. things are still working out, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, of course, all those things you, you, you enumerated in regards to the disaster that happens when a father is not um, integral to the family are uh, completely the case. I mean, the point I was trying to make was more, was more limited than that, not denying all the things you said, but more limited, was just pointing out that, I mean, in societies which 
the father is not honored as having a particular place in the family, they seem to be the societies where the, fa the father drifts away. Yeah? And I, it was a bit tongue-in-cheek, this thing about, you know, patriarchal culture was invented by women to hold men to their duties, but at a certain level, there, there's, a, there's a seam of truth hidden in there, not that women invented it, but that if the husband really doesn't have a significant role in the, in the household, which it seems to be at least in part given to him by his correct understanding as being the head of the house, then he experiences himself as a bit of an appendage. I mean, he experiences himself as just a kind of big grown-up kid. Which, who, it's another kid for the wife to look after. I mean, how many men live like that? Oh my gosh, yeah? I mean, I'm tempted to live like that, but I mean, how many men do live like that? Yeah, just the older kid in the family. But, and then, then like all the kids, when they grow up, they leave the home. And then the father, who just has the position as sort of older kid in the family, leaves the home. So the position of those people comment on it saying, you, you've got to accentuate in a certain way the critical role of the father and husband as head in order to root him in the family, in order to make him ready to die for the family. Yeah? Because he sees it as his family. Yeah? That he has the responsibility at some level to protect and to nurture and to help prosper. Yeah? He's not just one of the group. He's one who has somehow an ultimate responsibility to succeed, for the family to succeed. I think that was the point that these people were making. And to me, it's compelling. That's, that's what, I, what I'm thinking. Yeah. Yes, I'm in the middle. This lady here. Yeah. Um, it... It seems like we've been speaking about the, um, I guess, the practical or the formal head of the, f uh, of the father in the family. I was wondering if you could speak to the um, husband as spiritual head in the family. Um, we were just speaking to, um, I heard a statistic that um, children who um, go to church with just their mother um, later in life, those children are much more likely not to um, mm -hmm. hold to their faith. Mm -hmm. Whereas if a child goes to church with his father, they are much, there's a much higher um, um, likelihood that they will remain in their faith. The same as mother and father taking children to church, mm -hmm. same, same uh, statistic as just mm -hmm. father taking their children to church. And to me that speaks to um, the spiritual head, um, mm. the father as spiritual head in the family. And I just was curious yeah. to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, to me, it, it, at least, um, I mean, this is more of an inclination response than anything that's sort of processed in my mind. Um, I think we can also probably apply this king-prophet distinction, husband and wife at some level. Because it seems to me that uh, the mother has a particular sensitivity to the needs of the family and how to operate the family on a day-to-day -day basis. She sees, I think, better where the kids are at 
in just as humans, but also as in their spiritual life. And so she's like the prophet who I think sees in a certain way further and sees deeper into the family situation. And therefore, the husband should really, it seems to me, uh, go against her assessment very, very cautiously. Yeah? Because she's normally right. Yeah? Uh, my, I remember my wife and me giggling because there was a, a thing in, a, in the paper in England some years back of a couple who had been married 80 years. Can you imagine? 80 years. Amazing. And they were asked, you know, what's the, what's the recipe for happy marriage? And the wife, she, I mean, she spewed on about, well, it's, you know, flowers and it's talking together and it's this and it's that and it's relationship. And then he asked the husband, he said, oh, it's very simple. Two words, yes, dear. <laughs> okay, but there's a kind of truth in that as well, yeah? The, the, the wife has this insight, and therefore I think it's better to put it like this. In a way, she sets the tone of family life, including, in my opinion, the spiritual tone to some degree, but the husband is responsible for, you might say, enforcing it, making it a concrete and accepted reality in the home vis-a-vis -vis the children. So I don't think the spiritual headship, in my opinion, but it's just my opinion, requires he's the one who kind of works out the sort of spiritual project of the family. You know, we'll have rosary here, and we'll do this here and that here. In a way, I think that the, the, the mother is, as the prophet, is more attuned to that matter. But he's spiritual head in, and he's disciplinary head in the same way. He, the woman sets the rules of the home, I think, but the husband does ultimately have to enforce them. So I, I think it's that kind of headship. And I think that's somehow, I just feel that's more nicely expressed by the prophet king sort of couplet. Yeah, that's what I've got. Sorry, no more. Yeah, do you want to yeah, respond? Yeah. I just think... I've been married 12 years and just not, not 80, but, um, <laughs> but I, I remember, no, I came to Steubenville and didn't find my husband here. So ladies, it's okay. Find him somewhere else. Um, <laughs> he's out there somewhere. He's not necessarily here. So anyhow, uh, I have a wonderful marriage, a really, really, you know, uh, devout husband and leader, you know, leader in the church and everything else. But something I always struggled with, and it was going to be my question too, is can you speak to uh, spiritual headship? Because I always felt like the spiritual head of the family, and I always thought that was like wrong, you know, because not that my husband wasn't doing exactly what you said, because he would be the spiritual enforcer, but I'm the one saying, we should have family rosary night, and we have seven children, so, you know, we should do this with them, we should do that with them, you know, and, and then I would start saying to myself, maybe I'm out of my role here, you know, because I'm not the head of the family and maybe I shouldn't be taking this initiative, but it's what I'm good at. I'm homeschooling my family. I'm home with them. I see what they need. Like you're saying, I see their spiritual needs. And I, you just confirmed for me what has been a struggle for 12 years, just to encourage, you know, thank you, Holy Spirit, but that I've, you know, it's kind of just gone back and forth all these years, and he's always 
taken you know, the right initiatives for other things, so it's not like he doesn't take any spiritual initiative, but on the day-to-day, -day, like how did you say it, like the planning of the spiritual you know, life of the family mm -hmm. is something that does fall on me naturally, being mm -hmm. the mom and setting the spiritual tone of the home. Mm -hmm. And so it's encouraging that you affirm that, and I thank you for kind of articulating it in the way you did because it practically does make sense. I've lived it over 12 years and it does, you know, right, make sense that that is the way that it really does happen. So that's yeah, good. Thank yeah, you. Good. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Here. Okay, maybe this gentleman here. Sorry, take it away. <laughs> um, you, like all the things you said presuppose like we have like a good husband in place and you talked about like some ethnic groups they have like 87% like the husband's not even there. Mm -hmm. So what can priests do and what can like we do practically to like, I don't know how to say it, but like keep the man rooted in the family? Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean that's a huge question and um, Well, I think like I was trying to say in, in the main talk I gave, you know, we've, we've got to see that the ecclesial mission is rather close to home. And so first of all, of course, we have to work on our own family, our own relationship. And then we just have to encourage other couples. We have to give good witness to other couples. Um, we have to... Yeah, I, I, I think it's impossible to answer because it's just so related to the concrete situation that you're in. But I think myself, my wife, if we saw, you know, we try and, how do you say, um, pass on good advice in a, in a kind and simple way or try to model the joy of family life or if people come and they want to ask us something about marriage, then we give them time and we try to talk about it. You can, I mean, but that's just like, I think that's the ecclesial vocation. The ecclesial vocation is the apostolate that you have and it's so specific to yourself. I don't know about the big schemes and the big projects. Yeah, I just know that, you know, I will try and respond to that difficulty in trying to do the best I can and trying to just do the little bits of good I can when I come across people. Or if somebody asks for marriage preparation, I'll try and say, well, so I'll try and say yes to them and then just try and pass on the good things that we've learned. I mean, it's a totally inadequate answer, but I think it's just the question is unfair, to be quite honest with you, because <laughs> I mean, it's just so vast, and it's, it's, it's very hard to, to sort of answer it, because the answer is a very concrete answer, which is specific to the individual person and their circumstances. Can I ask then, like, what are like, the particulars that you pass on to like, families in marriage prep. What, what would we pass on to them? Yeah, I mean, we, we pass on to them only one piece of advice. When my, my wife and I, we don't advertise ourselves to marriage preparation, but sometimes people ask. And um, then we would say yes. And, you know, it, it makes me shudder because they, they, everybody always wants five sessions for some reason. I don't know what five. But, and we've only got about 20 minutes worth of stuff to tell them. It's, it's agony stretching it over five sessions. Um, and the only thing that we really tell them is, um, you have to develop a spiritual life. Yeah, because all the problems uh, in marriage seems to me, not all of them, most of the problems come from uh, lack of conversion. It's lack of conversion on my side that makes my wife's life more difficult than it needs to be. 
And the only way that I can improve as a husband is to allow the Lord to change me and convert me. So we, we major down that avenue. It's very sort of spiritual message, but actually it's the ultimate practical message. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.